Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 26, One Power, One God, Gregory of Nyssa's Letter to Ablabius. Today on the podcast, we finally get the whole episode to talk about one of the most evergreen questions in Trinitarian theology. How on earth, if we say that there are three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, do we get away with saying there is only one God worshipped by Christians? It is, of course, an important question to ask, and one that has, in some ways, been shaping our story since its very foundations. After all, Arius, Eunomius, the Eusebii, and all the other anti-Nicenes had a pretty simple answer to this question. The Son and the Spirit may be pretty cool, but they aren't divine in the same way that the Father is. They had, at best, the sort of skim-milk version of the Father's full-fat divinity. So it was super-duper clear that there was only one God, and that God was the Father. And of course, the Eusebii could even claim that their position was Nicene Orthodoxy. After all, how does the Nicene Creed begin? We believe in one God, the Father the Almighty. Seems clear enough. On the other extreme, modalists could easily claim there was only one God because Father, Son, and Spirit were all just masks or aspects of the one God who switched between those roles as was good and right. The poor pro-Nicenes, though, are kind of stuck in the middle, because on the one hand, they want to maintain that Father, Son, and Spirit are three distinct beings. They're not just modes of the one God. And on the other hand, they are equally insistent that all three share the exact same divine status. The Son's divinity is not in any way lesser than the Father's which leaves them to find their own solution to this persnickety problem. Enter Gregory of Nyssa's letter to Ablabius. This text, as I'm sure will surprise you, is a letter written to a guy named Ablabius. We don't know much about him, but he was apparently a friend of Gregory's, a fellow bishop, who keeps on getting asked how his teaching doesn't result in a doctrine of three gods. Now, we're not entirely sure who it is that keeps asking Oblavius these questions, although what evidence we do have suggests that his conversation partners are the Numina Makoi, those spirit-fighting believers who were down for the sun's full divinity, but drew the line at expanding the Godhead to three. Oblavius was having some trouble coming up with an answer to them, so he turns to his big-brained friend Gregory to get some help. And Gregory, of course, responded. Here is the full text of his glorious explanation of Trinitarian truth, and I quote, Lamau, just tell those spirit fighters that two is not equal to one. Find a way to make two equal to one, and then we will make three equal to one. They're in the same boat as us. XOXO, Greg. End quote. Okay, you got me. I made that up. Gregory doesn't say that, or even make an argument along those lines. I think he should have made that argument, because I really don't get how binitarian theologies have a big problem with Trinitarian theologies. I mean, both allow for plurality in the Godhead. Whether it's a matter of two or three members in the Godhead seems like a pretty trivial point. 
But the name of this podcast is not The Road to Ben Wyatt's Heretical Refutation One-Liners. It is The Road to Nicaea, and we will follow that road wherever it goes, no matter how many proverbial twists, U-turns, construction sites, traffic jams, and or school zones it takes us through. And so here we go, into the letter Gregory wrote, even if it's not the one I think he should have wrote. Now, although Gregory's argument is not quite as short as mine, he is pretty dang concise in this particular letter. He gives two basic arguments for thinking that the Trinitarian God is one and not three. He also gives several replies to counter-arguments that Ablabius is going to hear when he uses these lines. Gregory thinks, probably correctly, that Ablabius is going to need a little extra help getting through these debates. So here is argument number one. God is one because the divine nature is one and is never divided. How do we know the divine nature is never divided? Well, because all natures are never divided. Now, sometimes we speak of natures in the plural, as when we speak of multiple human beings. But Gregory thinks that this is sloppy language, and it's not technically right. It's kind of like saying, I could care less, when what you actually mean is, I couldn't care less, or using the phrase, begs the question, when you actually mean, raises the question. Seriously, the actual definition of begs the question is the opposite of what you think it is. Look it up. It's a true fact. And much the same is true of natures. For even when there are multiple humans around, there is still only one human nature that is common to all of them and is not divided no matter how many people there are. Gregory, like Basil before him, has his Garth Brooks moment. In the strictest philosophical sense, there is only one race, and that's mankind. Now, there are a couple of important things to say about this argument, because it shows a few intellectual developments happening in this period. The first is that you will notice Gregory isn't using the term substance or usia to describe what is common in God. He is instead using the term nature, or phusis in the Greek. It's where we get our word physics from. The differences between these two words can be subtle, but that does not mean they are unimportant. For starters, the word nature, in the sense of the nature of a thing, avoids some of the materialistic connotations you might get from substance language. After all, the idea that a substance was indivisible can seem kind of silly. Just like you can chop a candle in two and make two candles out of it, you could easily divide any material substance into two. Natures, however, as abstract individuals or concepts, don't allow that same kind of division, so it's probably a helpful linguistic shift. At least Gregory won't have to constantly reassure everybody that he's not saying God is some kind of big divine jello blob. That being said, he does use the language of Usia sometimes in this letter and throughout his career, so he's not going to get away from the legacy of substance language quite so easily. After all, how could he? It's right there in Nicaea. Okay, so that's the first thing to say about this argument. Here is the second thing to say about it. Gregory appears, on first glance, to be walking right into the so-called generic solution to the problem of the Trinity that we have discussed before. He appears to be saying that there is some general class called divinity, or the divine nature, that all members of the Trinity are members of, and hence are one in virtue of. Now, I've said on earlier episodes that this is a problem, because it seems like you could make the same argument with three people, three red pandas, or three of any other members of any class. Just pick it. This is, in fact, precisely the argument that Ablabius' opponents are making against him. 
So how is it that God gets to be called one when all of these other things don't? Gregory replies, essentially, yes. Strictly speaking, the same logic would apply to all things. In fact, there is only one human nature, just as there is only one divine nature. Same thing. You might think that Gregory is being a bit snarky here, or at least writing this argument off too quickly. I tend to agree. But there is perhaps an even bigger problem with this kind of a reply. Because instead of there being three persons in the Trinity, now there are almost four things. The Father, Son, Spirit, and this thing called the divine nature that all three persons share. It becomes a sort of fourth character in the narrative. And this is a problem for all kinds of reasons. We can't call it a trinity anymore, now it's almost a quaternity. But the biggest problem is that it introduces a mysterious character that is not talked about in the Bible at all. As Nicaea's opponents never tired of saying, the Bible doesn't mention anything about a divine substance or a divine nature. So to make that concept the centerpiece of your Trinitarian theology, when you have spent so much of your polemic railing against Eunomius for using unbiblical language like ungenerate, well, it's not a good look. However, before you write off Gregory's solution as pure silliness and pot-meets-kettle foolishness, consider the following. Gregory is smarter than you. Uh, he's smarter than me, too, to be clear. I'm not trying to say he's not. Gregory is smarter than just about everybody. He's the kind of genius that may come along once or twice in a century. And when you have someone who is operating at that level of intellectual sophistication, it is generally worth giving them the benefit of the doubt, even when they say something that seems kind of silly. There's often a lot of deep reflection that has gone into it. And so it's very important to consider very carefully what else Gregory has to say in this letter before we just write him off as a theologian of an unsophisticated generic trinity. So if we keep reading this letter, we will come to Gregory's second argument. And this is where things get significantly more interesting. For you see, Gregory knows that people won't just accept his simple claim that natures are always indivisible, so the Godhead is visible and so God is one. In fact, Gregory straight up says at the beginning of this letter, I probably can't prove this to people who would disagree. I can only give something to reassure those who already hold the correct faith. And for that reassurance, he gives Oblabius a second argument to use, and it goes something like this. How is it that we learn about natures? Well, each nature has an associated power with it. And that power causes beings with that nature to do certain acts. Now, Gregory is drawing on a philosophical tradition as here that is long and rich, but it's also a bit abstract, so let me give you a few examples of what he means. How do we learn about how plants work? Well, we observe them grow. That's the action that we see out in the world. Now, if they grow, then they must have some kind of underlying power that helps them grow. And that allows us to say, well, that's interesting. I wonder what it is about the nature of a plant that allows it to have the power to grow. And then we can study them and learn all sorts of cool things about photosynthesis and how cellulose works and all that kind of stuff. In other words, we learn about their nature. It works the same way with the sun. We see its actions like shining. We realize it has the power to shine. We investigate how it is able to shine, and then we learn about the nature of nuclear fusion, which is what allows that to happen. Now, of course, 
I've given you two examples that are a little anachronistic for Gregory's time, but they give you a sense of how the process works, and this is basically what he has in mind. Now, you're probably going to say, oh, but Gregory can't use that to reason about the divine nature, because he's already said that we can't comprehend the divine nature. And that's true. Gregory doesn't think we can ever know the divine nature as completely as we can know the nature of a plant or a star or anything else. But Gregory doesn't think we can't know anything about the divine nature. He does think we can know some things about it. We just can't achieve comprehension of it. So, for example, we can never give the divine nature's proper name, like Eunomius thought we could with the term ungenerate. But we can know some things about the divine nature by observing its actions in the world. So what do we see the divine nature doing in this world of ours? Well, of course, we see the divine nature working through the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now here is the kicker. The three persons of the Trinity always work together and always do one thing. Father, Son, and Spirit create the world together, preserve the world together, and are redeeming the world together. So the unified, unitary nature of divine activities indicates that the underlying nature is also one. Now, wait a minute, some persnickety numinamakos might say. This doesn't answer the question at all. I mean, let's, let's just go back to that example of three human beings. Let's say you will have three blacksmiths, all making a different part of the same suit of armor. Or let's say you have three lawyers arguing different cases in court. You've got three people all doing the same thing, but again, we've got three things going on. There's not one thing going on in any meaningful sense. How on earth is this different in the case of God? At which point Eunomius would probably pop in and nod his head sagely and say, Yes, yes, the Numenomachoi make a good point. There is no difference in the case of God, none at all. To which Gregory would reply, There is every difference in the world, you brother-bashing, God-hating heretic. Maybe Basil died before you, but I'm going to take you down. At least that's what I imagine he said internally. But externally, the Bishop of Nyssa kept his chill, which is probably good. So what he actually said was something more like this. Ah, but you see, there is every difference. When I say that Father, Son, and Spirit do one thing, I don't mean they do three different parts of the one thing, like three blacksmiths working on different pieces of a suit of armor. I don't mean that they do the same thing three times, like three lawyers giving a speech. I mean they do one literal thing. Think about it. We don't get created three times. We don't get saved in three parts. No, the actions of God are simple. They happen in one go. There's no composite pieces. And all three persons are involved in them at every single step of the way. Each action originates in the Father, is implemented in the Son, and is perfected by the Spirit. Gregory's point here is that the unity between the three persons of the Trinity is deeper than the unity of action that any human beings, or anything else in the created order, can evince. Now since that is the case, it's not appropriate for us to subdivide the Trinity. They always show up together, and they always work together in perfect harmony. And since they act in a different way than any created thing, we should reason about them in a way different from any created thing. While this analogy is imperfect, 
It's almost as if the members of the Trinity were part of some kind of psychic hive mind, sharing common thoughts and purpose and always doing their cool psychic space magic as part of the collective group, rather than going off on their own to use their gifts separately and get rescued by a traveling spaceship to learn lots of lessons about what it means to be an individual instead of a collective. Hmm. Hmm. Of course, Gregory didn't have access to that analogy. But it's a shame, because that would be really getting into some deep space. So deep, we could probably go there nine times without getting bored. Which is why this episode is brought to you by... Ben! No! We've been over this. Oh, come on! Seriously? Do you want the podcast legal team to have to do another copyright training? No. That's what I thought. So just leave the massive sci-fi IPs to their money-making and keep doing your silly little podcast. You can do it. You are so brave. I believe in you. to Nicaea is not brought to you by analogies to any major sci-fi IPs, but only by completely original analogies I definitely, definitely thought up in my head all by myself. Very good. Thanks. I guess you could say I made it so. I give up. But ultimately, even these totally original analogies of space hive mind species fail to capture the way the Trinity works. Because after all, you can remove a member of a hive. You can't remove a member of the Trinity. You see, for Gregory, the reason that all three members of the Trinity always work together is not just because they like each other a lot. It's because they are fundamentally inseparable in their being. They have a unity that is closer than we could possibly imagine as human beings. Divine persons are not the same thing as human persons, and so their relationships to each other are correspondingly different from ours. Scholar Khaled Anatolio says that Gregory of Nyssa is indicating something like perichoresis, which is a fancy Greek word that usually gets translated as interpenetration. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Ditto for the Spirit. So to glimpse one member of the Trinity is immediately to gaze upon the other two. There is no experience of the Spirit that does not include the Father and Son. There is no experience of the Son that does not include the Father and Spirit. There is no experience of the Father without the Son and the Spirit. They all go together all the time. Now, you should know that if you go reading the scholarship about this idea, you are very quickly going to find a lot of scholars yelling at each other about something called social Trinitarianism. Social Trinitarianism is a 20th century theological movement that argues that the Trinity is our model for how human social interactions should work. We should aspire to the same kind of unity and interrelationship that we see the three persons of the Trinity having. The movement takes its inspiration from a lot of places, but especially Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, in which he asks the Father that his followers might be one even as he and the Father are one. But it also takes its inspiration from passages like this one, in which Gregory appears to be explaining the nature of the Trinity by way of reasoning from a group of humans. 
Now, there is a lot of angry yelling about whether social Trinitarianism misunderstands Gregory and the other Cappadocians. On the one hand, this reference to a common nature and to human communities to explain the Trinity is not a one-off. We've seen similar language in Basil already. On the other hand, Gregory appears to be securing the unity of the Trinity precisely because the Godhead is not like human beings. And Father, Son, and Spirit possess a level of unity we cannot possibly attain in this life. Now, we will get into this debate later on, but not yet. I want you to have a full view of the Cappadocians before we start getting into arguments about their interpretation. For now, just know this argument exists, so that if you want to read more about this, you aren't confused when people start referencing it. Mostly, though, I want to get back to the question this whole letter is about. Can Gregory come up with a satisfactory account of the divine unity? Has this second account brought us anything less like the generic argument? Yes, I think. What is one in God on this second argument? It's not just a hypothetical, unknowable divine nature. It is the power and the actions and the properties of God. As Basil said, the goodness, glory, compassion, and wisdom of the three persons of the Trinity are exactly the same. Everything that really makes God God is the same in each one of them. What we know of one, we automatically know of the other two. The only differences are differences of relationship. The Father generates the Son. The Son is generated by the Father. And the Spirit proceeds from either the Father or from both the Father and the Son, depending on where you stand on the filioque clause. More on that in a later episode. Will this account convince Gregory's enemies that they are wrong? Will poor Oblavius finally be able to shut up the mean enemies who keep heckling him to defend his theology? <sighs> Probably not. The capacity for logical argument to shut up one's opponents is dramatically overstated in general. And Gregory knows this. Remember, he warned Oblavius at the beginning that his arguments probably aren't going to make all of Oblavius's problems go away. They can reassure Oblavius that his faith is sane and not blasphemous, but that's about all they can do. What about today? If Gregory can't convince a Jew or a Muslim, for example, that the Trinity is right, can they at least convince another monotheist that Christians belong in the monotheism club? If history is any guide, probably not. While I am not an expert, I suspect that when most Jews and Muslims hear one God, they imagine there is one entity, one independently existing thing that is not mere epiphenomena, one hypostasis, to use the 4th century term. And you could point to that one hypostasis and say, that, that is God. And there is no other hypostasis you could point to that is God, nothing else you can call divine without being an idolater. And on that criteria, Gregory's scheme fails. It must fail. If we accept that as the premise, the very idea that three hypostases could all be divine is preposterous. But in his defense, the conceptual scheme that Gregory brings is something ancient Judaism and Islam would not have been super familiar with, at least at their origins. Both Judaism and Islam were forged in the crucible of polytheism, surrounded by neighbors whose gods ate, drank, married, divorced, cheated on each other, and generally acted like humans if you gave those humans a bunch of magic powers and immortality. 
Against that, Judaism and Islam offered a picture of one God, far removed from moral imperfection, whose grandeur and glory showed just how flawed all those false gods really were. Gregory, by contrast, invites us to consider the possibility that a God who exceeds our comprehension may be one in a deeper and richer way than humans can be one. In our world of finite, countable things, what is one is usually something you can point to. One human, one TV, one red panda, one Zeus, one Hera, one of any of those other pagan gods. But what if God, the true God, is different? What if the Christian experience of God is such that we repeatedly encounter three distinct but inseparable presences in whom we see the exact same image of divinity? Can we find that oneness not in that which we can define and conceptualize, but rather in the experience of the one gracious storyline of redemption that defines the Bible in the one experience of overwhelming, overflowing divine compassion, solidarity, justice, and love? Can we trust in the ultimate unity of God on the basis of biblical testimony and Christian experience rather than our own limited, creaturely conceptions of unity? The question is, of course, an absolutely critical one. It is also one on which we should not expect the religions of the world to agree anytime soon. Yet there is still value in thoughtful disagreement. It helps each side clarify its underlying assumptions and premises. Perhaps this thoughtful explanation of the Trinity's unity will help us be more charitable readers of others especially if we remember that Gregory's account of divine unity is only one possible way of telling this story. There are others that we will be encountering before too long. For today, however, it has been enough to wrestle with this short, rich, and complicated account of the world's most disputed monotheism. I hope that intellectual fare is enough to sustain you through this part of our trek down the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.